we wait for people to break down and we park ambulances at the bottom of the cliff. And we have to question that in this day and age. Where does that come from? Well, I believe it comes from two mistaken assumptions. One is, if it's not broken, there's no need to fix it. And that's the idea, we don't need to prevent it. But the second one is, if it does break down, we'll find a cure. We'll fix it. What happens when there is a health or social crisis? Governments, institutions, and individuals tend to respond, often swiftly, with a flurry of activity. They allocate resources, they make investments, all in an effort to alleviate the immediate issue. It's a natural reflex, isn't it? When a problem arises, we rush to put out the fire. We build more hospitals, we increase access to mental crisis services, and we do everything in our power to save lives. But here's the thing. Many of the ailments and diseases that plague our society are preventable. Well, can we truly prevent something if we're only investing in solutions that take care of people after they're already sick? That is a question that has led us on this journey into the realm of the social determinants of health. You see, whenever there's a crisis, we naturally seek answers. For instance, when someone tragically dies by suicide, our hearts ache with the question, why couldn't they get help from a healthcare provider or a crisis helpline? It's a valid question, a critical question. But with the social determinants of health, we need to take another step. We need to ask ourselves what factors led to that person being in that situation in the first place. In other words, we must consider the causes of the causes. It's not enough to simply treat the symptoms. We must unearth the roots of the problem, the unseen forces that shape our lives, our health, and our futures. My name is Gordon, your host for this episode, along with my co-host LaShawn, and stay with us as we delve into the social determinants of health and why is it that our societal actions are still focused on the wrong things. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health, from the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not necessarily represent any of the agencies or organizations we work for or are affiliated with. The social determinants of health is probably one of the most overused buzzwords in health. I wouldn't even say public health these days, just health in general. Mm-hmm. Without making any assumptions and bringing our unique take on our interpretation of this to the forefront, how would you describe for someone what the social determinants of health are? I would just simply describe it as a person's health is not just their genetics or what they do every day. It's impacted by many social factors. And when we're talking about the realm outside of just genetics and individual behavior, we're talking about things 
that are from the social context that affect health, like household income, your parents' income, workplace conditions, racism, discrimination, housing, access to that housing, access to adequate health care, your childhood experiences, your social support, so your friends, people you can go to in times of suffering, your coping skills, culture. These are things that affect your overall health to a greater percentage than just your genetics. And even talking about your environment, your built environment, right? So we're really talking about social factors here that influence health. And when you come from a biochemistry background like myself or a biology background like myself, it's really hard to parse these things out. You might just think that it's just genetics. You have a certain gene for disease that causes all these ailments in your lives and diseases. But no, actually for your overall health, these social factors play a much greater role. Yeah, and even sticking with the genes example, there's demonstrated examples where you might have a predisposition to a certain disease. Epigenetics. Based on the environment that you're raised in, you actually manifest that disease or not. So there's a clear interplay between the environment and our inner biology as well. Mm -hmm. But I would put it quite simply as empathy, LaShawn. I think a lot Mm, of times where... Right, because sometimes where you're driving and someone cuts you off or they're cussing you off or something, we have a natural inclination to say, well, that person's a bad driver or a bad Mm -hmm. person. But the reason I bring up empathy is because if you take a step back and say, why is that person acting that way? Mm. Then you're really uncovering the social determinants of health or social determinants of behavior, for example. So they might have gotten a call that their partner is about to deliver a baby and they're frantically rushing. They might be late for work. And if they're late again, they're going to get fired. There's numerous reasons why that person might be doing that behavior that you observed in that specific instance Mm -hmm. that you can't then attribute to them as a person overall. Even though we really want to believe that that person's evil, a bad person, there are factors other than that behavior in that present moment that determines their ability to maintain or achieve health. And that's what we're really talking about here with the social determinants of health. Things outside of someone's immediate control and individual level behavior and individual genetics, things like where we live, play, eat, work, a lot of those factors influences our ability to maintain health. And LaShawn touched on many of them that we talked about before. I like how you put it. Yeah, just oftentimes we just need to dig a bit deeper and really try to understand why. It takes a lot of work to understand why and keep asking the question why and getting to that root. But that's what we're talking about here with the social determinants of health. Right. It's like people will say, oh, why don't certain people behave like this? Or Mm -hmm. those people don't wash their hands. And it's literally empathy. Take a step back. Okay, there's cultural factors that influences that group's relationship to food. This is how certain things are done. Then those behaviors have inherent risk to it, naturally, like anything else in life. And then that will influence the risk of getting healthy or getting sick. And that's all that it really is. Like, let's mm-hmm. not overcomplicate this very simple concept. The mm-hmm. solutions are complicated, mm-hmm. but the understanding of why we're talking about this is not. 
So let's talk about that from a policy perspective, Gordon. So we know this. We know that there's a lot of social factors that affect one's health outcomes. So what are some of these policies in place and do they incorporate aspects of social determinants of health? As you're saying, and I'm saying, it accounts for a lot of your health outcomes. So Mm -hmm. I surely should believe that they're represented adequately in health policies. Am I right? Sorry to di- sorry to disappoint you, LaShawn. It, they are not as much as they should be. The reason that we're talking about policy is that at the population level, when we look at something like the socio-ecological model, which is a concept that involves five concentric rings, sometimes four, and at the center, it's individual level, then it goes interpersonal, so your relationship with your friends and your families then the community or organizational, and then it goes outwards to societal. Policy has the biggest potential to influence societal outcomes. So that's why we're starting with policy. It is disheartening to know that policies do not incorporate health outcomes or the importance of the social determinants of health as they're being developed. So we did have an episode talking about healthy public policy, There are health policies that are made specifically with the goal of achieving health, but there's also other policies that don't explicitly have the goal of health being the number one outcome, yet it's incumbent upon us that that is also included because everything affects health. So in this specific example, we came across an article in the conversation where they broke down of all the policies that are in Australia that are targeted to youth wellness and health, they only found that 10%, 10% of those policies had suggested specific actions that would address the underlying social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. This is very important because In all that we're seeing now and how things are unfolding in society, a lot of our efforts are focused downstream. Mm -hmm. So there is an issue with malnutrition in the community. We focus on maybe a school breakfast program, for example, as something downstream, where one of the main determinants of what a child might eat is parental income or parents' access to leaves when they have a new baby or being able to take time off work to care for their kid. So that doesn't fix that problem when we provide free meals during the school year to students. It helps it in that specific case, but it doesn't address the social determinants of health. Yeah, and that's important because we're talking about this case study in Australia that looked at these policies and found that 10% only have these actionable items. But what we were getting at at the beginning of this podcast is that when these social determinants of health aren't actually considered, remember, they're the most underlying root causes of many of these health disparities. When it's not considered at the policy level, these disadvantages Mm. for people actually get reproduced over generations and over generations. If you're not considering them, you're just putting a Band-Aid over something to make it feel better. But it's not actually addressing the structures, and real concrete things that are allowing those 
disadvantages and inequities to reproduce. So that's why this lack of consideration about actionable social determinants of health in policies such as the one built in Australia, that's why they're concerning. And the interesting thing, LaShawn, is when I was reading this, I said, okay, well, it makes sense because they're not really health policies or mm-hmm. wellness policies, but they most of them were. Yeah. Most of them were health-related policies and still didn't integrate the social determinants of health as part of the solution. So there's a bit of a imbalance, if you could call it that, between what we would consider the Band-Aid or the downstream or the patchwork set of actions and solutions with more upstream long-term approaches that have the greatest impact for sustained change over time. And we're not really seeing that play out at the policy level. There's a disconnect between what we understand to be true and what we understand to be the most effective in terms of public health practice between what's actually happening at the policy and decision-making level. So we end up talking about the same things over and over. We fund very quick wins and then we act very puzzled when it doesn't move the needle over time. Yeah, but do you want to know why, Gordon? Why, in my opinion, like a lot of these policies aren't tackling the underlying social determinants of health? Spill the beans. It's expensive. Think Mm. about it. Changing structures that are already in place, work policies, organizational policies, government policies, changing them, making them more equitable, making them sustainable, changing what's already in place. That doesn't come at a cheap price. In addition to that, right? Who's down to actually take the time it takes to do that? When we're talking about these short, brief political cycles, who's going to take the risk about not finding those quick and easy wins? And who's going to take that time? Maybe you should run for office, Gordon. Make those changes. No, no, no. Definitely not. What I will say, though, is it's a bit of a a false choice. Mm. I think we have to reframe things as not one or the other. Mm. It's just a balance of both. One exercise that I remember being involved with recently, in, which sort of opened my eyes to how we try to get people to think differently, it was essentially, the exercise was, you have $100, hmm. and here are these four things. Based on your mandate and your priorities, allocate them accordingly. So it's not really like a binary true or false question. It's how much. So the question is more how much of our policies should be targeting upstream versus Mm. how much should be targeting downstream. It's not all should be this or all should be that. So I think that's where we run into a problem here. Right now, 90% focus on on downstream, where 10% focus on upstream. The number should probably be at least a little closer to the middle to see the needle move. So it's not necessarily 100 and 0 and 0 and 100. It's getting the balance right. If we want to see changes over time, eventually, that three-year breakfast program that you started that runs out of funding in three years aren't going to help the kids that haven't been born yet. Hmm. So what do you do that's more sustainable in from a more balanced perspective to ensure that you get the best of prevention 
So preventing the issue from happening in the first place. And for people that are already in a precarious situation, having supports that help them out right then and there. Mm. We focus, because it's such a salient issue and it's in your face, we tend to gravitate more towards putting out the fires that we can see mm-hmm. and less so on preventing things that haven't happened yet. Prime example, COVID-19 mm-hmm. pandemic. Why would we ever put billions of dollars to preventing a pandemic that hasn't occurred yet? Mm-hmm. Why not just put money in things that we can see being reported in the news, things that we hear from our community? Why not just focus on those now? It's Well, because we don't see the pandemic yet. Mm-hmm. It's easier to then put... Can you imagine if we invested all this money that we put in COVID prior to COVID happening? Could we have prevented it? That's a mm-hmm. question. And then yeah. with the same amount of money, you prevent millions of people dying. So I, I take your point with the expense, but it's a very short-term view of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I like your balanced perspective. But again, mm. I'd, I'd see that a lot of these policies across many different regions are the same. Mm. They don't have that balance that you're trying to refer to. And a bunch of these factors, like I said, money, short timelines, political cycles, ideological beliefs, biases, they all come into fruition. They're not getting those quick wins like we're talking about. And we can definitely say that if it's a more balanced approach, it's more cost effective when you have more money invested in preventative interventions or actions or policies Mm -hmm. in the long run but we don't get to the long run ever because we're always kind of trying to put out that fire right so yeah it's Mm -hmm. yeah it's tough how do we (laughs) address this and how do we adjust it i don't know is it more of a human nature thing Lashawn? because even in a job or workplace it kind of turns out to be something similar where you focus on things that are an immediate problem or something where you can gain something in a short term versus like, have you ever worked in a place where they say, LaShawn, we're going to ignore the fires. We want you to put a plan together to prevent this thing from happening two years from now. That's so rare. But those are the things we're talking about, right? Like when we're talking about the socio-ecological model, we're talking about organizations. And within organizations, they have their own policies and mandates. Those are root causes Mm. of some of these inequities, these health inequities that we're seeing. Prioritization of resources, funding, programming, all those things get affected by a policy a workplace has, their work plans, the policies, their commitments to their funders. And the government, these are all things that affect that. So, yeah, it's very well ingrained. Here, here's the thing. Look at it this way. We have a drug poisoning crisis. Mm-hmm. Okay. A lot of housing supports are set up where they expect or they have a requirement of people before participating that they're abstinent from taking any drugs okay Mm, yeah so you can't get housing until you are not taking any drugs or until you've addressed your addictions Mm -hmm. but we know from the evidence that you're more likely to address those things like addictions 
mm-hmm. when your basic needs are being met, like food, yeah. clothing, housing. Mm-hmm. So then that's what we're talking about with the root causes. So now instead of doing that, we put more funding to get ambulances to pick up people who are overdosing on the street, to bring them to the hospital, to get treated, and then put them back on the, on the street. Then they're not getting the help that they need. And the cycle repeats itself instead of focusing on the right thing like building more housing and affordable housing, increasing Mm. minimum wage, increasing living wage, and doing all those things that at the root cause will put people in a better position to make the healthier choices. One of those examples that I love thinking about is the Humpty Dumpty example. Mm. Okay, everyone knows Humpty Dumpty, our good old friend who likes climbing walls. But let's ask this question. Why was Humpty Dumpty on that wall anyways? How was he able to climb up Mm that wall into this dangerous situation? Why weren't there measures in place to protect him from going that high up on the wall and eventually falling down? Why weren't there cushions and mats on the ground to make sure that he didn't fall? Why weren't there proper barriers at the top of that wall to make sure he wasn't able to fall? If you relate that to public health, it really goes to show all those structural pieces that need to be resolved in order to prevent those accidents from happening. Because once Humpty Dumpty falls is when the ambulances come through and it starts that kind of acute medicine situation, right? But what are those societal barriers and protections we have? What are the policies that should have been put in place to protect Humpty Dumpty, our good friend? Mm-hmm. That's a great example. And shout out to Dr. Corey Keyes. Mm-hmm. And if I could use another analogy, as well i think this is one that he gave as well where there's people walking there's a river and there's a bridge over the river and there's like a hole in the river and people are walking over the bridge constantly falling through the hole into the river potentially drowning it brings them downstream and our decision is to invest in people who can swim in the water take them out of the water (laughs) yeah without fixing the hole that's in the bridge so without fixing the hole that's in the bridge, we'll constantly have people in the water forever without fixing the root cause of the problem, which is fixing the hole in the bridge. This was Gordon and LaShawn talking about the social determinants of health and the importance of policymaking, integrating considerations for the social determinants of health throughout the course of its implementation. And we walked through a couple examples of how this materializes on the ground. For now, signing off. Until next time. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.